Welcome to Christ and Culture, the podcast of the L. Russ Bush Center for Faith and Culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Here we'll explore how the Christian faith intersects all avenues of today's culture through conversations with leading thinkers. Welcome to the conversation. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Christ and Culture podcast. I'm Dr. Ken Keithley, and today we're speaking with Dr. Jeffrey Kapersky about his recent lecture, How the Laws of Nature Were Naturalized, and what this historical understanding implies for us today. You can access Dr. Kapersky's lecture and other great resources on our website. Dr. Kapersky is a professor of philosophy at Saginaw Valley State University in Michigan. He has a PhD from Ohio State University and a degree in electrical engineering from the University of Dayton. His areas of expertise are the philosophy of science and philosophy of religion. While most of his early work focused on philosophical questions in physics, his more recent publications deal with issues at the intersection of philosophy, science, and religion. He is an editorial board member for Philosophy Compass and has published articles in Philosophy of Science, the British Journal for the Philosophy of Science, and the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, among others. His two books are entitled The Physics of Theism, God, Physics, and the Philosophy of Science, and Divine Action, Determinism, and the Laws of Nature. Thank you for being with us today, Dr. Kapersky. Oh, very happy to be here. I appreciate the invitation. I enjoyed uh, your lectures very much, and you uh, talked about how the laws of nature were naturalized. Can you share with us just a little bit about your story? How did you come to faith? Sure. Well, I was um, a, a fairly content atheist in, in high school. Uh, I, I think at the time it was pretty clear that, that religion was all, all psychological. It was all emotional. And I even thought that I might write a book about it someday, not realizing that there are other people that had done something like that. Um, but then I started looking into it. I thought, if I'm going to write a book, I got to I got to know something about my topic. And then I realized that I wasn't the only one who ever asked these sort of tough questions. Uh, and, and worse, there are actually answers to those questions. So after a couple of years, I just found myself uh, believing. You know, I I do I do think there is a God, and I think that this Jesus of Nazareth probably did rise from the dead. And so once you once you've got that, you have to have to do something something with it. As far as my um, as far as my, my my academic journey, how I got to you know where I am today, I only I only took one philosophy class as an undergraduate. Um, my my undergraduate degree was was in engineering, not philosophy. I didn't like that one class. <laughs> so so what type of engineering were you going to go into? Electrical engineering. I have a bachelor's degree in electrical engineering, so I mean, I've done a little bit of work you know in that. But um, obviously, I didn't I didn't stay there. So. That one philosophy class that I took, I, I, I didn't like it. I, I, didn't, I didn't take any more. Um, but I was about three years into the, the engineering degree when someone, and I, and I had I had become a Christian by then, and someone challenged me with the idea that I should maybe pray about my uh, my vocation, about what I was going to do with, with my life. And up to that point, I just really never considered that that God would have anything to say about what, what you what kind of job you would have. Um, and so that then led me to, uh, after I graduated and uh, I, I did work for an engineer for a time, I ended up taking some graduate courses with the Christian philosopher, J.P. Moreland. And then he ended up recruiting me 
into philosophy. I didn't know that's what was happening at the time, but that's exactly what was going on. And, uh, and then I went on for a PhD in philosophy uh, at Ohio State, and I've been teaching here at, at Saginaw Valley State University in Michigan ever since. So, yes, um, I think there's a lot of people who could say that J.P. Moreland's had uh, <laughs> quite an influence uh, on their lives uh, and their thinking. For sure. Um, so you spoke on how the laws of nature were naturalized. Uh, that was a that was a very catchy title. And in, in this in your lecture, you spoke about the X Club, mm -hmm. which is a that's a great that's a great name for for a club. It sounds like something straight out of the 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 Marvel Cinematic Universe. Yep. Who or what was the X Club? The, the X Club was was a group of agnostics and some uh, liberal Anglicans in England in the second half of the 19th century. So their most famous member um, might be known. A lot of your listeners might know the, the zoologist Thomas Huxley. He had a famous exchange with, with William Wilberforce about evolution in, in 1860. But there were others: uh, physicist John Tyndale, there's a biologist Herbert Spencer, um, and none of these. They didn't like even if they were Anglicans, they didn't like Orthodox theology. Uh, they thought that that religion and Orthodox theology was just way too influential in politics and in, in education and, and in science itself. So they they sought to, to change all that. So they, they had lots of speeches, they wrote a lot of books, wrote a lot of articles. Um, but there's also this concerted effort they had to get, get their members and people who agreed with them into places of influence. So many of them had, had leadership positions in, in the Royal Society of London. That was the most prestigious scientific association of the time. Um, they oversaw a commission that had to do with the, the hiring of, of biology professors. Uh, there were lots of initiatives about the training of science teachers. But they really weren't, it wasn't just training them in science. They were training them to think of science in, in purely naturalistic terms and then teach their students to, to think of that way as well. So get God out of the equation uh, completely. Uh, so a lot, of, a lot of what you hear today about science being this completely secular endeavor, even the idea that science is somehow in, in conflict with religion, that is, that's exactly the, the message that the X Club was promoting. Uh, and so at least in the, in the Anglo-American world, their vision about how we would think about science and its relationship to religion, that, that that's what we've inherited. It all came to pass. It's helpful, I think, for us to uh, understand a little bit of the historical context of what Huxley and others were operating in. In the 19th century, as it begins in the early 1800s, science as a separate, distinct discipline was just coming into its own. And most men at this time who practiced science, as we would understand it, Charles Lyell or Charles Darwin, these were gentlemen scientists. They, they were wealthy men of independent means who basically uh, studied science as, as a hobby because they had the wealth and prestige, the wealth and, and, and means to do it. The idea of, of science as something that's funded by society uh, and, and uh, something that is uh, independently established within the academy. That was a relatively new thing. And Huxley had a lot to do with that, did he not? Absolutely. Even, even the word scientist, that, that wasn't coined until the 1800s. So if you, if you go back to, 
uh, to, to Newton, and again, before, before the year 1800, uh, they wouldn't have called themselves scientists or, or physicists. Um, they, they would have they referred to themselves as natural philosophers. Um, so yes, this whole idea of a, of, of a, of a regimented uh, uh, discipline that is science or some specialization, and certainly something that's going to be in the universities. Yeah, that was, that was all coming about uh, in, in the 1800s. It's relatively when new. I yeah, when I was reading uh, Huxley's biography recently, and it was talking about how Huxley considered himself a fan of Darwin even before Darwin wrote Origin of Species, and Darwin gets to ride on the Beagle as a gentleman companion, uh, you know, in which his his family funded his his journey. Uh, it was it was completely paid for by his his parents, mm -hmm. uh, and so he got to ride along with the captain uh, in relative comfort and ease, however much comfort and ease one can have on a ship in the 1800s. Whereas Huxley, whenever he tries to travel, he has to join the military, uh, become an assistant surgeon on the HMS Rattlesnake. Now, mm -hmm. there's a name for a ship mm -hmm. in, 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 a, in dreadful, uh, appalling squalor and conditions. Um, and so I think that that really affected Huxley and the others. They wanted to have a way in which uh, scientists could be independent. And for them, this meant independent from any type of, of religious authority or voice. Uh, so I think they would claim they were just trying to do society a, a favor. Uh, would, would, that would be a, an accurate way of putting it. I think so. You're, you're, you're right about this, this notion of kind of bringing it to, a, uh, to, to people, allowing people to do science and even become science teachers uh, who, who didn't have money. They could be from a blue collar background. They just needed to get the relevant training. So, but yes, there, there was this kind of populist push trying to, to br bring science to the people and make it less of the, of the gentleman scientist of, of the previous century. Yeah, I think, I think you have that all right. Yeah, I, and I think um, even though they call themselves the X Club, this is not a deep state conspiracy. Um, I mean, they had an agenda. I think that's pretty clear, but it was a pretty open agenda. It wasn't like they were hiding something from someone, but Huxley was no friend of religion, was he? Right. So, um, yeah, that's right. And when I, religion, I mean, it really is, he, he would be okay. And, and many of them are okay with say a, a deistic sort of religion. So you could believe in a creator God. And it was, it was really more revealed to religions. So we're talking about, Christianity, uh, especially in you know high church, you know, Anglicanism, Catholicism, um, that those were the targets. That's where the real tension was. Um, so, but officially, you know, some some sort of religion that didn't play uh, too much of a role in your thinking that that was that was okay. That was permitted. Um, but you're right about the about the the notion of the of, of the conspiracy. It wasn't it wasn't. Behind the scene, they were they were quite open with with what their views were, um, and in fact, this this paper that I'm working on, um, I realize isn't isn't terribly uh, well timed. And in Christian circles today, there's there's too much talk of a, of a conspiracy, I, I think, and I really don't want to contribute to that. Um, my my goal in the paper wasn't wasn't primarily to uncover any any sort of conspiracy. I'm I'm mainly trying to discover and talk about how the how the notion of the laws of nature went from this, this theistic idea back at the time of Newton to a, to a fully naturalistic one uh, that we have today. Today, we, when you hear about the laws and you 
you know, a science class or whatever. No one, no one talks about God. It's not, not considered to be a, a theological matter at all. So the X Club, it just turns out, yeah, they were, they were important in, in this story about how this change came about. Um, uh, even and one of my main sources was um, the historian Matthew Stanley. He, he doesn't think that, the, that this plan that they had to get their own members and people that were you know, like-minded in these positions of influence, he didn't really think that was the, the most important thing to all this. It really, it really was the arguments that they made. Like you said, out in the open, they wrote a lot. Uh, Huxley spoke a lot. He drew large crowds uh, and people just, just came to you know, adopt his position over time, which as a professional philosopher, that's, that is somewhat heartening to me. I mean, ideas do matter, right? They, I think they matter more than, than most people realize. It's just, unfortunately, some, some ideas are, are, are like candy and other ideas are like vegetables. And in my view, too many self-described evangelicals these days are living on candy, you know, which I think is yeah. kind of unfortunate. Yeah, that's a, that's a fitting analogy. The, um, so, so Huxley, one of the things that he and the X Club uh, endeavored to explore is whether or not the laws of nature were foundational or whether they were empirical. We, we as moderns, and I put myself in this, cat, in this category, we suffer a bit of am, amnesia. We have no idea many times how we come to think about certain things like the laws of nature. We just assume that this is the way everyone has always thought about it. That's not what you're saying. You're saying that there's been a real change um, through the efforts of Huxley and others about how we think of the laws of nature. So, so what kind of change happened there? Walk us through that. Good. So if, I mean, if you go back to the beginning of the beginning of the scientific revolution, when, when people first started using this, this language of laws, so people, people like Descartes and, and Newton, um, they, they all, any name you could come up with in, in that era, they, they all thought the laws were ordained by God. Uh, in fact, most of them, as far as I can tell, they thought the laws of nature just are God's commands for, for how things will go. So it's not that God created this thing, this, this power, this law of nature. He just, it, it's kind of like what you see in, in early Genesis, right? God just speaks. He says, this is, this is how it's going to be. And then the world proceeds um, accordingly. Um, so yeah, in the and there really as a as a matter of history, uh, there's there's really nothing controversial about that. That the laws absolutely were a were a theistic idea uh, that the X Club inherited to some degree. You really couldn't by by the time you get to the late 1800s, you can't you can't really ignore that the laws of nature. Everyone's talking about the laws of nature, uh, physics and chemistry. Clearly, the, the notion of laws. Uh, you know, it's, it's extremely important. Uh, so what they did, what, what Huxley ultimately did, was, was try to find a way to, to naturalize the laws, to get people to, to think about the laws that, that aren't somehow intrinsically tied to, to the notion of theism. And, and he succeeded. Again, we've, we've inherited that today. Uh, if anything, today, as, as you were saying, we, we tend to think of the laws as, as, as an opposition to, to theism. So if you have an explanation for something, some phenomenon in terms of a law, then, then you think, oh, we don't need God anymore. We don't need God to explain that. It's all explained in terms of the laws and nature. Well, that, that dichotomy to, to, the, to the early moderns would have just been, it wouldn't, wouldn't make any sense. You just, you just don't have laws for the whole of nature without God. It just, it just doesn't make sense at all. Yeah, so, so if the laws are foundational, as you point out, then, then they're transcendent. They, they, they precede. They're a per, uh, a priori uh, to to nature itself. Well, those kind of laws 
sort of, if they don't imply it or don't entail it, they at least imply that there is a lawgiver. Uh, whereas if they're empirical, so what's the difference then between foundational, uh, a foundational understanding of natural law versus an empirical understanding of natural laws? Right. So, so someone like Huxley, again, he's got, got to have a way of thinking about laws that, that doesn't involve God. And, and so, and, and most, most philosophers today would, would, would agree that most philosophers are not theists. So they need, if they're going to talk about laws. They have to have another way to do it. And so some of them, at least there's, there's different, different ways of going about it, but, but some of them think of laws as just mere regularities out there in nature. So that when the temperature below, drops below 32 degrees Fahrenheit, water freezes. So you know, one thing happens, temperature drops, then another thing happens, the water freezes, and you see this again and again and again. And so some people want to say that, that a law of nature, there isn't anything more to being a law of nature than just that regularity itself, just one thing following another. So on this view, there's nothing that makes that happen. Laws, laws don't govern events on this alternative view. Um, nothing makes one event follow another. They just, that's just the way it is. They, they, just, they just happen. One thing happens, and the next just happens to, you know, to go along with that. So you don't need God for that. You don't need the laws as some sort of governing power. And as they say, or as you put it, they're, they're just per perfectly empirical. We go out and, and discover these regularities. And then we call at least some of them laws. Then it begs the question then, why is it that we're able to extrapolate that which we discover in nature empirically, and then mathematically make predictions about that which we're not able to observe. And then it may be, a, may be generations later that those mathematical abstractions and applications turns out, well, you know, they're right. Um, it begs the question then, if this is simply something that I'm inventing, why does it work? Uh, mm -hmm. why, why it, it, it begs the question, why are mathematics so um, effective uh, in, in making predictions? It's, that's a problem. There's also, uh, if you have this, this view, this fully empirical view, it also um, raises this new question, which, which philosophers have been struggling with for, for a couple hundred years, um, the, the problem of induction. Uh, why is it that we can make, that we can go out and, and make observations and, and make generalizations on the observations? We see lots of cats and, and, the, and the ones we see are mammals, so we conclude all cats are mammals. Um, how, how do we, how can we be confident that, um, that those regularities aren't going to be different in, in a year or a or hundred years? You know, that, how can we be, be confident that, that nature is going to stay on the rails the way we see them? And, and it turns out there just isn't anything. <laughs> there, there's no guarantees because the laws, as we were saying, if you have this empirical view, they don't, they don't make anything happen. They don't keep nature regular and uniform. Um, they're just these discoveries um, that we make. So there's this question, how, how can we be confident in the, in the discoveries we've made thus far that they're going to continue to be able to guide us into the future? Um, and, and there's no, there, there's no really good answer to, to that, that problem. Uh, the best we can do is say, well, it's, it's worked up to this point and we hope it continues to work and induction, uh, but there's, there's no guarantee. So everything really could just go off the rails tomorrow. Uh, and, and that's just the way it would be. So Huxley and the X Club were incredibly successful. I think we would, I think that any historian or philosopher of science would have to agree that Huxley was uh, perhaps maybe the most important 
man of science of the 19th century. Um, and so he had a profound influence. Um, there are Christians who tried to con have tried to consciously model uh, their efforts after that of the X Club. And I'm now thinking of Philip Johnson and the intelligent design movement. I can remember as a much younger man back in the 1980s getting, or maybe it was late 80s, early 90s, I'm trying to remember exactly when the book came out, when Darwin on trial came out and I, I devoured the book. I, I found it very, very stimulating. The intelligent design proponents declared war on philosophical naturalism. What is philosophical naturalism and how does it, how's it different from say like methodological naturalism? Mm -hmm. Is there a difference? There is. Um, so philosophical or, or ontological naturalism, that, that's a view about what exists. It, it says that the only things out there are, are natural entities, the kinds of things that you could study in, in the natural sciences. So, so God and angels and souls and stuff like that, they, they don't exist according to the, the philosophical naturalist. If you're, if you're an atheist, then it's very likely that you're a, you're a philosophical naturalist. Methodological naturalism is, is weaker. It says that although supernatural beings, they might exist, they might be out there, you just can't talk about them when you're doing science. So you're going to give a scientific explanation. You, you just can't ever appeal to anything supernatural. And that doesn't mean there, there aren't true explanations out there that do involve God in the supernatural. They just can't be part of science. So, so, so you can't... So you, you can't um... Uh, say that the planets move in the orbit that they do because the angels are guiding them. Definitely not. Yeah. That would be a big no-no. <laughs> you can't, you <laughs> which, can't do which, that. Yeah, which were uh, early church fathers like Origen, that was a that was a serious question. You know, you, you know, how is it that the planets do what they do? And and one of the, you know, well, maybe the angels are are guiding and directing. Um, so that would be the distinction and difference. So for someone who is a layperson, they'd say, well, 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 what's wrong with that? What's wrong with methodological naturalism? Looks like it's a, it's a reasonable thing for a believing Christian involved in the sciences. Uh, that's, a, that's a reasonable uh, approach to take. What would, be, what would be the downside to that? Um, the, there's a, a downside. Um, I think it's not so much a downside for, for the Christians. It's a, it's a downside for, for, for science itself. Um, I can give you three reasons. Uh, if you, if you want me to go through, you know, all, all three yeah. right now, this, this came up in, in the talk. One reason, um, is that if methodologic, one reason that people like methodological naturalism, naturalism is it's supposed to keep um, the naturalists kind of in their lanes, right? If, if science is just about naturalistic stuff, if it can't talk about God at all, um, then and science should be neutral. You know, the, the scientists speaking qua scientists shouldn't have anything to say about, about religion, nothing, nothing positive or nothing negative. Well, if you if you look at that, people like Richard Dawkins and Lawrence Krauss and others, well, they're, they're not they're not playing by the rules, right? They're they're not staying in their lanes. They're saying things like science has has disproven religion. So it seems like methodological naturalism for them means that. They don't have to listen to, to theistic arguments. They don't have to listen to our side because that's not science. Uh, but then they can attack religion all they want uh, and claiming that, that science backs them up. So um, if that's the way methodological naturalism works, then I, I, I'm, not, I'm not for it. You know, count me out. Yeah, and I think, I think there's a great example of that if you go to the Barnes & Noble bookstore. Hmm. Um, go to Barnes & Noble to the science section and... A significant portion of the of the books in the science section are books written by atheists 
arguing for atheism. And I can think of several writers who do that. Whereas if you want to read Francis's Collins, Francis Collins's book, The Language of God, mm -hmm. which is a scientist arguing for theism, mm -hmm. you got to go over to the religion section. Right. And I've, and I've looked at that and I thought, now, wait a minute. Why is it that those scientists who are using science to argue for atheism, it's in the science section. Mm -hmm. Scientists who argue for theism, it's over in the religion section. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and I guess that's where you're saying they're not playing fair because Richard Dawkins ought to be over in the, the religion section, just like Francis Collins. Is, is that what you're arguing? Put, put them all together one way or the other. But, you know, but like you said, it, it's very arbitrary because of the conclusions that they draw. You put one in one section and one in the other. So I do think a lot of those books, um, you're, you're right, they, they do show up in the science section. And really what they're calling science, when they say, you know, science, science proves that, that atheism is true or whatever, whatever it is they're, they're going to say, um, really what's going on there is there's an awful lot of philosophy going on. There's an awful lot of philosophical assumptions that are that are buried into that claim they don't tell you that it, it is all they say is this is what the science shows and so yes i think one of the things that um that one value of, of philosophy and philosophy of science is trying to uh, trying to disentangle those things to say well here's what the science shows and you know here's where they're going you know above and beyond the science smuggling in some some you know other philosophical assumptions and then calling them science when when really the, it's it's philosophy that's that's being piled on and sometimes it's not very good philosophy no i think it's very bad actually <laughs> yeah i think i interrupted you before you you had two other reasons why you thought that methodological naturalism had a downside sure or at least that that you don't need it that science doesn't need it um so another one is that um if you bring in methodological naturalism you say you know this is what science can talk about and this this is what it can't talk about you're, you're limiting the explanatory resources of science um which I, I think is potentially bad so here's here's a really extreme example but it at least illustrates the point you can think of dna as a code with, with four different letters in it um, so let's just say that within lots of different strands of DNA, you found an encoded message and it says designed by God. It's right there in the DNA. So how do you explain it? Well, under methodological naturalism, the one thing you can't say is that somehow or other God, God put that message there, right? That's, that's not allowed. You're going to have to come up with, with some other explanation. Well, but what, what if God? What if God did put it there? Right? What you know? What if that were the right answer? Well, that would mean that science has to adopt because of methodological naturalism has to adopt a false explanation because it's not allowed to follow the data wherever it leads. So I don't I don't think that science should limit itself like that. You, you, you can have a preference for naturalistic explanations. I think it's actually a good preference, but you, you can't be or shouldn't be dogmatic about it because you just you never know what you're going to discover tomorrow. Wouldn't that be if? Wouldn't that be exactly what ID proponents are contending today? In that, in that, the intelligent design proponents are saying that there needs to be space, conceptual space, that would be willing to accept uh, evidence of design within uh, the fine tuning of the universe. Are what one sees uh, in most uh, uh, books advocating ID, either in the fossil record, like the Cambrian explosion, or the, you mentioned the DNA code, the evidence of design in, in the, uh, uh, in the DNA code, would that would be, would that be w w one of their major goals to, uh, 
to make, carve out a space that open for intelligent design? They, they definitely, they definitely did uh, uh, try to undermine both both philosophical naturalism and methodological naturalism. I, I, I've wondered though why methodological naturalism, um, why that was such a, a target for them, because they were very clear when you look at, at, at Michael Behe, uh, you look at William Dembski, they always said, you know, especially when it came to the biology stuff, when you found irreducibly complex stu structures within the biology itself, they were very clear that, that you know, they, they have arguments to, to conclude that somehow or other a, a designer, an intelligence, right, has been involved in all that. But they, what they did, what they said was that the evidence doesn't lead you to conclude definitively that it's God. They couldn't, they couldn't single out God as just some sort of intelligence. So strictly speaking, it, it could have been, it could have been aliens. It could have been something that, that an alien intelligence has been involved in, in the in the you know, evolution of, of, of life on Earth and in, in, in our DNA. Um, so if that's the case, I mean that's that's a naturalistic. Um, uh, explanation, right? That, that's a naturalistic intelligence. So I think really, um, even though, yes, they did want to try to open up uh, space for, for supernatural design, I think they would have been better off with a, with a more narrow uh, topic early on. I mean, open up space for the idea uh, of intelligence, right? That an intelligence has been involved and just kind of keep the line that, that, that they often said, be agnostic about the nature of the intelligence, leave that for, a, for another argument. And, and I, I think that would be fine. I mean, we do this in philosophy all the time. You, you have a philosophy class and you take, and you see um, an intro to philosophy, the, the ontological argument for the existence of God, and the cosmological argument for the existence of God. Those don't get you to Christianity, right? They, they get you the conclusion if, they're, if they work is that there, there is a God. And then there's going to be a further question then about the, the nature of that. I, I think that would have been the, the better move for the intelligent design movement. Now, let's talk about where the ID movement is today. Back, as I said, back in the 1990s, whenever the ID movement was getting started, I remember reading a cover story in a Christian magazine. I won't say which one it was, but it was devoted to the ID movement. And the cover story was, what will science look like a generation from now? after ID basically wins, you know, the victory of the, the coming victory of the ID movement. It was, right. was the, and you had the various ID proponents talking about what they thought the biological sciences would look like and what physics would look like. And it was, it was quite almost triumphalistic. I don't think anybody would say it's actually worked out that way. Uh, what happened? Where are we at? Where do you see it headed? Yeah, it did not go as planned, as you say, um, uh, there was a, a lot of overconfidence. I think I, I believe that that uh, the, the leaders of the intelligent design movement back then, um, Philip Johnson, uh, William Dembski in particular, um, they, yeah, they, they were way too. They, they thought that their ideas were so powerful that really all they needed was to get them out there. Uh, you know, just get get exposure of, of the very notion of intelligent design, and from there it would just would just it would just take off. And so you're right, uh, stories like you're talking about, uh, front page news in the, in the New York Times, like that was in 2001. Um, even though they were critical, so a lot many of these articles were critical. They they still thought, well, it's still getting the word out, uh, and and that's all that that that, that you need. And it turns out it's not. Um, so outside today, outside of Christian circles, there's there's really no conversation about about ID uh, whatsoever. There was a lot of discussion still, maybe 15 years ago, uh, but but a lot of that got killed off by a, by a trial. There was a trial in in, uh, in Dover, uh, Pennsylvania, 
uh, about the teaching of intelligent design. This is 2005, um, teaching of a design in, in high schools. And, and what the judge concluded was that intelligent design just, it, it is not science. Uh, now, I think there's a lot of bad philosophy of science that, that went into that judgment. I, I think the judge got it wrong, uh, but he didn't ask me. Um, but even among you know, members today of the, the Society of Christian Philosophers, it, it is hard to find a supporter of, of intelligent design. Uh, I think many of us are, are fine with intelligent design in principle. It's just that they, they never met their burden of proof. Uh, and anytime you've got a new idea that comes along, it, it challenges the orthodoxy. Uh, and I'm talking about the scientific orthodoxy. Well, it's, it's got to prove itself. The, new, the newcomer's got to prove itself. And I, I, I think that idea in its current form, it, it just it never, it never did that. Um, yeah, and, and you and you and I, I think both would would uh, would say that with regret as sympathetic uh, friends of the ID movement. In right, a, fr a friendly critic. Yeah, I, I I was rooting for them. Right, I I, yeah. I I was involved and and hoped that they could they could do more. And yeah, they they made some bad decisions. Decisions I think that if they had maybe studied the Huxley and the X Club a little more closely, they could they could have seen a, a better way to go. Uh, those guys in the late 1800s had, had a better picture about how to, how to pull this whole thing off. So as we close uh, this episode, what advice would you give listeners who want to learn more about these topics? Uh, are there websites? Are there articles, uh, books? How would, how would you, for an interested layperson, uh, someone who's not a scientist, but these kind of topics, uh, they, they're, they're finding this subject very intriguing. Where, where, where would you encourage them to go to? Well, I can, I can give a couple of books. Um, uh, there, I mentioned, I think, uh, Matthew Stanley, the historian Matthew Stanley, he, he wrote a book called Huxley's Church and, and Maxwell's Demon from Theistic Science to Naturalistic Science. So it's both about uh, Huxley, but also the, the Christian physicist, uh, James Clerk Maxwell. So, so mostly biography, uh, kind of a you know, two biographies and one, but also like like many many good biographies, it's talking about the era and the you know the the, the background and what's going on. There's stuff about the X Club in there. I, I thought that was actually actually very well done. Um, if it is intelligent design, if you want to have a kind of a history and and, and then where are we today? Um, it's a theologian, young theologian, uh, Rope Kojonen, K O J O N E N, um, wrote a book just just a, a three years ago, I think now, uh, the intelligent design debate. And the temptation of scientism. Scientism. I think that's really good. It's the, as far as you know, an, a comprehensive view about you know what what the arguments were, and then you know, how it all went and how it played out. I think he does a, a really good job. Um, if you're looking for more of, of the stuff that I've done, um, although again, it's, it's most of it not directed at, at, at the layperson. I do. There's a, a web page, um, academia.edu. Uh, lots of academics have papers on on academia. D edu you can go there put in my name and see some of the stuff that, that i've i've done on this we've been talking to dr jeff kapersky uh and we've been talking about how the laws of nature were naturalized uh, this is the christ and culture podcast i want to say just to our listeners if you would take a moment to subscribe to our podcast if you haven't done so already and also if you haven't done a review uh give us a good review uh, and we'll certainly appreciate it. Uh, the more positive reviews we have, the better we're able to uh, get the word out about what we're doing here uh, at the Christ and Culture Podcast. My name's Ken Keefley, and I'm wishing you a good day.